The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly I'm talking to you live from the... Internet Law Center Broadcast Center in Santa Monica, California. Um, it's got a busy day here today. We have Domain Fest going on just a block away from our office. And so today we're going to focus on the domain world and things going on in Domain Fest. Um, so we have a great show to you for you today. Um, please be seated and stay for the hour. As I said, we have Domain Fest going on right across the street at the... Um, the Fairmont in Santa Monica, and that's um, quite a crowd there today to talk about all things um, in the domain world. Um, we have with us um, two guests from the show. Um, we have a keynote speaker from yesterday, Eli Goodman, who is um, with Comscore and he, their media evangelist. Um, he's been a he's he's been on this show a number of times and so you many of you are already familiar with him but he's quite an impressive gentleman and um and, and the second half hour uh we have um phil corwin who's been on our show before as well and he is the general counsel of the um the internet commerce association and that is the lobby group for the domains domainers and um, we're going to talk about what's going on in policy wise and legal wise um in the domain world so um, today is February 1st, and um, we have Groundhog Day coming up. Um, today is the 10th anniversary of the beheading of Daniel Pearl, and um, my um, sympathies go out to the Pearl family today. Um, they're pretty prominent here in Los Angeles, and uh, um, I know how they've suffered through that, and uh, they just recently, this week, celebrated um, Daniel Pearl Day. Daniel would um, like to play music wherever he traveled um, for the Wall Street Journal, and um, so they celebrate his life with music, and they had a celebration earlier this week, and um, and then of course every year the Los Angeles Press Clubs, it's the highest award given every year, is the Daniel Pearl Award. So um, very somber day, and um, my sympathies to the Pearl family again. Um, but we have with us today Eli Goodman, and Eli, are you with us? Yes, yes, I'm right here. And um, Eli is a uh, he has the unique title of media evangelist. And how does one become a media evangelist? Well, the simple way is uh, when the company lets you make up your own title, you can pretty much come up with anything. <laughs> uh, but really, in the end, you know, the nature of it is, is a place like Comscore, when you are in the business of research, and, and what's the most important thing about research beside it being accurate is people believing it. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, if you think back to early Internet days, especially when the Internet was trying to take hold, you had a lot of different evangelist titles. And uh, so it's really a throwback to that, you know, to the, to the, to the early and mid-'90s as it relates to 
being out there speaking a lot about, uh, you know, specifically the media you know, at, at Comscore, whether it relates to like search or video or display advertising or social, et cetera. So basically, I'm a public mouth for the organizations where that comes from. Well, no, I I, I can kind of hear you. I think you know, there are times I, I've um, slipped into evangelist mode when it comes to. Um, you know the industry getting more active on the public policy side. So, um, but no, I think it's it's a useful title, and I think you know, more people should have it. So, um, you're the keynote speaker here again uh, at um, Dom- Domain Fest, which is actually, um, which says something of your fortitude, because uh, last year I believe you got Legionnaire's disease. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, I'd like to say that it had gotten a little uh, a little ill upon arriving, um, <laughs> but I managed. It was awesome enough that I, I agreed I would come back. Right, so it was not anybody's fault. It was just really more of an accident. What are you going to do? So, well, it's good to have you back. Um, and so, last year you you kind of did a, a state of the industry presentation, which is kind of a broad brush. Um, and but today, yesterday for your keynote, um, the focus was on um, the social world. And, yeah, um, so, oh. why don't you tell us well, a little about it? If you think about last year, like what what's changed and why I changed it up. Um, last year, coming into a state of you know state of the internet, internet vital signs, really broad as you mentioned, covered everything in sort of a horizontal fashion with not necessarily a lot of uh, vertical depth. This year, being that I was coming back to do the same opening session, a wanted to completely switch up what it was going to be because it would be pretty lame if people that saw me last year just saw the same presentation with updated stats. But the other thing is, as an organization, we have seen uh, you know, such incredible growth over the course of the past few years uh, with anything social networking related. I mean, obviously Facebook and Twitter being the big names, but uh, you know, a lot of other things around the world. So this particular presentation was looking at the entire worldwide Internet, both from a person perspective as well as an activity perspective, but using the lens of social media to better understand what type of influence it has and what it means for you and I as consumers, but also you and I as people that work in the business. You know, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes um, when you're in the middle of a trend, um, you often forget um, what it was like before the trend started. And I, I noticed them from your presentation, you had a great um, you had a great quote um, from Thomas Friedman, and um, you know, author of "The World Is Flat," you know, the New York Times columnist, and just talking about the dramatic change that has occurred in in the very short period of time, um, and that you know, it's only been a matter of a few years. Um, when he wrote "The World Is Flat," there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't Facebook. And and now, I mean, we all live by it, and uh, and that was only six years ago. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about how quickly things have changed. I mean, this really is a a function of our times. If you went back, you know, five hundred years to think of the Renaissance, and then how long it took to be able to get to the Industrial Revolution, and then as it, <coughs> uh, you know, it kept sort of squeezing down the amount of time you got to change, let's call it like human evolution at, um, you know, both an intellectual and an emotional scale. And even, you know, that quote by Thomas Friedman, he talks about, you know, the quote is, when I wrote The World is Flat, Facebook didn't exist, Twitter was a sound, the cloud was in the sky, 4G was a parking place, and Skype for most people was a typo. All of that changed in just the last six years. 
and the cookers suck. One of the leading voices, <laughs> right, as it relates to uh, globalization. You know, the idea here is social networking really captures that very, very well, considering the fact that across the world, social networking is completely ubiquitous at this stage. But that said, there are a couple things, and we could talk about them today. It's not necessarily the same everywhere you go, you know, whether it be by a demographic set or also by uh, geographic markets around the world. So um, in looking at you know, these trends, um, one is it's hard to say. I mean, you talk about what could be the next disruptors. Um, is, is social networking a, a temporary phase, or is this this is going to be with us for some time? Just because of its kind of it's as it is well suited for the next phase in our hardware, which is the mobile phase. Well, you know, I say there's a couple things I would say about that. Social networking, if we step away and you know don't necessarily think of it as a particular company, right? Just think of it more of as an idea. It is communication. Right between you and me and people we know and people we don't know in the world at large. I don't think that that's, A, going away, nor is it brand new, right? You know, certainly, uh, you know, in history, people were pretty social animals, so the idea of socially networking is uh, <coughs> insane. I just think of the, the, the Internet, and specifically you know, a lot of the different mediums are, let's say, the, the conduit at this stage, which really just allows it to proliferate as, as much as it has. So I don't think it's going away anytime soon, and it's only going to get bigger because, you know, as the you know, the world keeps getting smaller, the ability to communicate across borders with different people and people with, find other people with different interests, it really just the, the, the need for such a thing is, is incredibly large. As far as how mobile plays into that, uh, I, you know, that, that I think will also directly impact a lot of the growth worldwide, um, simply because if you look at the history of Internet adoption, uh, you know, around the world, the United States was definitely a desktop PC culture, right? We just had uh, desktops and PCs when the Internet launched, and that's how it began to grow. But a lot of places around the world, they only had mobile devices. That was the only way that they accessed the Internet, uh, even as of today. So the, the amount of social networking that is done through mobile devices, whether that be smartphones or tablets, iPads, things like that, uh, you know, will only continue to grow at almost an exponential rate over the course of the next few years. Now, you um, you note that in some ways, in be, partly I think because of the um, the greater penetration of mobile devices in, in some other countries just because they're they never really had adequate landlines, you know, in Africa or in some parts of Latin America, that, you know, there's also greater um, penetration in social networking. Um, yeah, so a couple things. If, let's talk about some stats. Just if you think about the social networking world, the size of it. At this stage, if you were to just look at um, social networking on desktops and PCs, you're talking about a full 1.2 billion people across the planet that are accessing and using social networks uh, at any given time. So that's a full 82-plus percent of everybody on the planet that is accessing the Internet, uh, again, via PCs and desktops, that, that is using social media. 
And of course, on mobile, uh, you know, that number can also continue to skyrocket. So as far as, um, you know, different countries and markets around the world, it's interesting. If you look at and break out the entire planet of social networkers, one-third of the world's social networkers are in Asia-Pac, right? Now, certainly that's the largest collection of people on the planet as it relates to social networking, so that's not a major surprise. But something that we see that is... Um, you know, rather fascinating from a consumption and engagement perspective is Latin America. I mean, out of top ten Latin American, excuse me, out of the top ten socially network, so social networking countries on the planet, five out of the top ten are in Latin America. Wow. Now, um, I noticed that. Um, it, uh, uh, correct me if this is wrong, but they they average seven point six hours a day in social media in Latin America. Well, no, you're talking 7.6 hours a month. Oh, a month. Right? Oh, okay. So, you know, that was 7.6 <laughs> hours a day on, on uh, social networking would be quite a lot. But that's, if you think about it, also just to throw out some other figures, right, is that um, out of the entire time spent on the Internet period in Latin America, almost 30% of it is, is spent on social networking. And it is, you know, per person they average 7.6 hours. So it's, it, it's a fascinating statistic. I mean, there's a variety of different theories as to why that is, um, you know, from just general intellectual curiosity. I have my, my sister-in-law is from Colombia, and I asked her about it. I said, what do you think? And, she's, and she was really funny about it. She was joking. She said, well, you see, I have a lot of relatives, and we all like to talk to each other a lot. What do you expect? Now, that's, of course, anecdotal, but uh, it just kind of cracks me up. You know, when she thinks, you know, when she says it, but. Um, and so, as you look at um, the evolution of, of, of the, of social networking, and, you know, we talked earlier about whether, you know, whether this was, um, you know, there was the Renaissance age and then there was the time suck age. Um, but, you know, you actually defended social networking as actually really just replacing other functions of what we had done before. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it was funny when um, you and I had spoken about this previously, have we reached the point of time suck? Like, are people just sitting there, uh, you know, just cruising through looking at videos of, uh, you know, cats dressed in dresses, you know, walking down runways? And uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the case. Now, you listen, you take the good with the bad, but, you know, a lot of this, uh, you know, at a social networking level, the communication it isn't, all, it isn't all bad, and a lot of it can be exploration. There are a lot of things, even if you take away from social networking of just posting Facebook updates, let's also not forget the, uh, even when you're watching TV and, you know, something comes up and you decide that you want to post a question on Facebook to somebody that's something you didn't understand, uh, or you hit up Twitter, or, you know, I personally, uh, you know, I'm big on my IMDB and Wikipedia apps, you know, dictionary.com to help me understand words or things that are going on. So I think that there's there's absolutely a degree of time suck that comes into all of this, again, time spent either consuming or posting in social media, but a lot of things also you could learn, uh, things you never even considered from what, in my opinion, from my Facebook friends, what ends up being a much larger set of friends that I have probably in real life that I talk to on any given day. Yeah, I was actually, it's at, I was actually at an event yesterday and I I actually saw one of my Facebook friends, and I wasn't sure if I was breaking protocol. <laughs> and, um, but um, now, one thing that it's, it's interesting that we we talked about also was that um, 
what you're seeing is um, you know, engagement on um, a, just a, a different level, and um, and and that. But you also, being a data person, you're able to um, quantify um, events and engagement and reactions in a way you weren't before. And we talked about you know Facebook and their now alliance with um, Politico.com, and they're they're quantifying the reactions to. Um, you know, political events based on, I guess, you know, people's update status. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. You know, when you get into a world of statistics, you essentially break it into two groups, right? You have what are quantified statistics, so numbers, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and so on and so forth, or 40% of an audience likes this. And then there is the qualification. Who are these people? How do they feel about something? And that really, um, you know, based on just a huge volume of, uh, of of whether it be Facebook posts in, in that example that you just mentioned or different companies that will analyze Twitter feeds and so on and so forth. The ability to understand sentiment and what that means across whether it be a, a micro-level group or a macro-level population and understanding what the reaction is to any particular item, whether it be... Uh, you know, when the the Giants win the Super Bowl this Sunday, or um, you know, something happened as it relates to the the Video Music Awards, which in fact was one of the the the, the largest tweeted moments of the year. So, it's it'll be interesting to see as that technology develops, it actually evolves. I think would be a better way to put it. You know, how much better it get and what type of both analytical properties it brings us, as well as uh, predictive capabilities. Well, I think there'll be plenty of time for the technology to develop for when the Giants win the Super Bowl. Um, but any of it. <laughs> um, so, as we, as you, in doing your talk, um, you know, you're obviously a very popular speaker here. Um, what was like the thing that the, the one or two points that people reacted to the most, and that yeah, they asked you about the most? You know, I would. There, there were three things. I think that you know, when I got questions both immediately afterward and, you know, throughout the day, you know, wandering throughout the conference. Um, one, mobile, right? Everybody wants to talk about mobile and, and what's going on there. Um, the second, and I'll, you know, explain a little bit deeper as to, to what it is that they were asking in a sec. The second was international, right? They, everybody loves to hear about international. And the third was, um, you know, one particular website that we've seen that's popped up this year called Pinterest. Uh, Pinterest.com, sort of an online pinboarding website. Uh, a what so website? It's Pinterest, like P-I-N, like Pinterest, right? Uh, interest, but with a P on the front. Mm -hmm. So um, I recommend checking that out. It's actually kind of fun and, and rather addicting. But the mobile-wise, you know, everybody just wants to know, is this, are we finally in the year of mobile? How much time should I spend putting together a mobile strategy and whatnot? And, and I absolutely believe, uh, you know, once you hit about 10% of your traffic is above mobile, you really should start thinking about targeting and uh, delivering different messages and different, you know, whether it be mobile-optimized web or, you know, begin to think about uh, mobile apps and things like that. Um, second is with the incredible growth as it relates to tablets and specifically iPads, right, which is really the, the hugely dominant force in the marketplace, are that you have to remember that the experience, the, the mobile internet experience that people have on their smartphone 
is inherently different than the one you have on your iPad or, again, whatever type of tablet you may be using. And marketers have the ability now to be able to target different messages and different creatives to different people based on devices. I mean, the screen's bigger, it's a different shape, and the things that you do on your iPad tend to mirror what type of searching and activity you have on a regular computer as opposed to a smartphone, which is very heavily related to like immediate and local needs. So that was first thing. Second, international, we covered a lot of that, just what types of things are happening, how is it different in different places. Um, I think one of the things I didn't mention earlier was the, the fact that local social networks have seen a lot of great global growth. And what I mean by that is once a social network starts to have 30, 40, 50% of its traffic and usage from outside of the country that it's based in, that's when you really should start to sit up and take notice. I mean, at this stage, if you looked at um, you know, Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter, I mean, the mass majority of all of their traffic is coming from international markets. I mean, you're talking anywhere from 60 to 80% of their traffic uh, you know, coming from uh, you know, non-U.S. markets. And that same thing is beginning to happen in other markets around the world where you have locally-based ones, um, like VK.com in Russia, for example, where you're talking about 40% of its visitor base comes from outside of Russia. So a couple of things to be able to consider. And the last thing I'll just mention, you know, Pinterest.com is a huge, I mean, it's grown 500% in the past five, six, seven months. It's uh, upwards of four or five million unique visitors now. And this is a brand new social network that is just visually based, and it's about creating online pin boards, or what I call sort of online scrapbooks, where you can basically pin images from anything you see on the net through just a little uh, toolbar plugin, right, on your browser, and pin them to your, your pin boards and name your pin boards. It could be like, this is my honeymoon, or this is my uh, restaurants you know, that I want to eat at, or spa days, or dresses that I like, you know, whatever it might be. And uh, I wrote a column about it, you know, a few months back, just about what I think of, like, what was it really tapping into from a social networking perspective. Facebook, at, at, at its essence, is about things that are memories, things that have already happened, right? You, you're posting about, uh, this just happened to me, or I just watched this movie, or uh, right. I'm thinking about my friends, or whatever. But Pinterest <laughs> is really more of a wish list. You know, when you when I looked at it and talked to the users and began to play around with it, it's a lot of people putting together things of someday this is the kind of meal that I would like to eat, or I would love to have this dress, or I would love to shop for this particular thing, or I would love to again honeymoon in uh, Bora Bora, you know, and then put together a, a pin board for it. So it's uh, it's really I, I just found that to be to me at a um, you know at a very simple behavioral level that's how I went about defining the difference, and it's really seen a lot of tremendous growth. It seems like it. I'm, I'm on it now. It seems like it's a, it's like a bookmarking site, except you're sharing your bookmark with, with the entire world. Yeah, I mean that's really it. You have your friends, and they can comment on it. And you know, I had learned about it from uh, you know my my colleagues in Chicago, and that was something that was very interesting. In what I ran, wrote that column on SearchEngineWatch.com, and uh, did some analysis of who are the Pinterest users, and most of the time when. Uh, you you historically look at the growth or adoption of any type of like technology or new trend. It, it tends to start out on the coast in the United States, right? Either see, you know New York or L.A. or San Francisco. Um, being a uh, a New Yorker, I you know I'm sure I could be an arrogant New Yorker. I'm sorry, 
But when it came to Pinterest, what was really fascinating about it was that the mass majority of uh, you know users on Pinterest were from the Midwest and the South. And in speaking with my my colleagues from there, and I used to live down south for an extended period of time. Uh, um, scrapbooking as a culture, just this idea of putting together pictures of things that you are into, was a it was just a behavior with which that lends itself very well to what Pinterest was. And it's really, I mean, listen, it's taken hold everywhere at this point. It's really just growing like wildfire. But um, that, that's interesting. It's pretty fascinating the the different makeup of the social networking user of that particular website versus pretty much the entire internet and how it breaks out. Because that surprises me because, I mean, I'm not to, stare, you know, not to, to, to draw any assumptions, but are they, um, is that same group that's early, often early adopters or not? I would think they weren't, they would not be. Well, the answer is no, and that's why it was, um, you know, so interesting. I guess it's just tapping into what is a, a cultural zeitgeist of something, you know, the Midwest and the South. At least that was my, that, that was my anecdotal assumption here, you know, based on, the uh, you know the predilection for uh, you know for scrapbooking right was the idea of why they were so into it and the sharing of it and talking about it as opposed to it just what it caught on and began to catch on uh, on the coast but as far as I haven't done and much deeper analysis than that but that's the conversation that I've had and the people that I know that use it and the ones who were early adopters it was counterintuitive to stuff that we've seen in the past. Now, very briefly, we only have a few minutes left. You know, where do you see China in all this? Well, you know, China is, I don't think there's any question that China is is enormous growth market, right? I mean, it's if you think about it, there's like 300-some-odd billion people online in China, and that's out of the, like the one-and-a-half billion people. So the amount of growth that's going to be had there, especially with, uh, you know the, the the advent of their middle class and, and the pushing of that more people on more devices and access to the internet in different ways. But social networking in China isn't nearly as um, let's say ubiquitous as it is in some other countries because of different types of controls from the government. Right? There are not everybody in China is necessarily online. Uh, excuse me, on um, you know on social networking. So if you were to look at most countries, most of the major internet countries on the planet, I mean, any, usually over 90 or 95, some places 98, 99% of the users in that country are accessing social networking. In China, it's only 53%. Okay, at this time, only 53% of uh, the Chinese use social networking uh, on, their, on their desktops and PCs. So there's a lot of growth that can be had there. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see not only how much it does grow, but where it does, because uh, Facebook's popular everywhere, right? There's no no question to that, but there are also different types of microblogging services that are particularly popular in China. I mean, Twitter being the uh, you know the main microblogging place, but also something like Weibo um, or Weibo, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is also uh, seeing incredible growth there. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, you know, just both culturally and behaviorally, how that growth happens and what type of networks it does happen on. And microblogging, you know, is important just because it's it had been under the radar screen, but now Chinese are trying to regulate it for that reason. And the very, I guess, the last point um, is that this, as fast as social networking is growing, the money is a little bit slower to get there. Um, advertisers are just kind of slowly um, easing their way in. Yeah, so you're talking, you know, think about, let's, 
let's talk about the size of social networking and then how it relates to uh, you know display. One in four display impressions in the United States appeared on a social networking site in um, you know as of like say October, right? I mean it's a big number. And five percent of all impressions at this point in the United States are what we call socially enabled. Uh, that's if you saw a display ad that has uh, follow us on uh, Twitter or. Uh, you know, friend us on Facebook. It has some sort of, uh, you know, social networking enablement, you know, in, in the ad itself, right? But even though you're talking about one in four display impressions on social networking, display advertising, only about 15% of the actual dollars is being spent on display. I mean, the CPMs are flat out lower. A lot of that has to do with um, long-tail advertising being done on Facebook, which is the hugely dominant uh, you know, display advertising uh, publisher in, in the world of social networking, but also a lot of that lag, uh, you know, has been from some of the premium brand advertisers, particularly like retailers that have not been putting their, let's call it their fair share, again, that, that 25% of, of, of their spend towards uh, social networking. Oftentimes in conversations I have with clients, it has to do with they're concerned about uh, unsafe brand environments, um, you know, because social networking, they see as a little, you know, could be uh, a little wild, wild left at times. Now that they begin to ease off of that, and I think that that number will catch up. But up to this stage, that's definitely something that has uh, pushed a lot of that out. Is you have incredible targeting on social networking, but not necessarily as much premium content to be up against that you might find on other types of, uh, let's call, more premium ad publishers. Um, well, we're running out of time. I want to thank you um, for joining us, and uh, it, it's been a pleasure, um, and I hope you'll consider coming back. Now, um, if people wanted to uh -oh. check out your presentation or learn more about you, where, where should they go? Well, they can easily find, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at okay. Los Buenos, um, you know, an old nickname, you know, from high school. And then uh, you can also track me down at any stage on the Comscore blog, uh, at comscore.com slash blog. You'll just be able to find myself there. And I also have a monthly column on searchenginewatch.com. Well, thank you very much, Eli. It's been a pleasure. And everyone, um, definitely keep your eye on this guy. He's, uh, he's definitely got his hand, finger on the zeitgeist, and um, it's been a pleasure having you. Great. Thank you. When we come back, we'll have Phil Corwin from the Internet Commerce Association. Law and Business Report, after this brief recess for our sponsors. In 500 yards, CPA Way will be on your right. You have reached your destination. On the interstate of Internet marketing, CPA Way helps you monetize the way, no matter which direction you're heading. CPA Way is your route to low-risk revenue. Advertisers, we have paved the way to delivering revenue channels that will meet and exceed your expectations. Publishers, we monitor and manage your campaigns to bring you the most revenue possible. Publishers can feel secure to leverage direct offers, while advertisers can find safety offering their most valued campaigns. The road to trust, respect, integrity, and honor is just ahead at CPAWay.com. It's time for the 2012 SCS Conference and Expo to make its way back to the Big Apple, New York City. 
SCS New York 2011 makes its way to the New York Hilton March 19th through the 23rd. SCS New York 2011 will feature over 70 sessions, nearly 100 exhibitors, and networking opportunities with thousands of marketing and search engine optimization professionals. SCS New York 2011 will start with a high-profile opening keynote from Google's digital marketing evangelist, Avinash Taushik. Don't delay. Come to SCS New York 2012, March 19th through the 23rd, inside the New York Hilton. Register right now at searchenginestrategies.com. That's searchenginestrategies.com. From the creators of We Build Pages, experience the power of the Internet Marketing Ninja. An exclusively trained army of nearly 100 in-house ninjas. Mastered in the arts of social media, local marketing, content creation, SEO reporting, and yes, link building. The Internet Marketing Ninjas will release a new version of their legendary tools to the public. Visit imninjas.com. The ninjas are coming. Webmasterradio.fm. Welcome to the place your competitors get their edge. Jump on it. We're here for you 24-7. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on Webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. This is Ben and Kelly with the Internet Law Center um, for the second segment of the Cyber Law Business Report. Um, we are having a special Domain Fest um, show. And uh, with us in person in our uh, luxurious studio here is Phil Corwin. He's the general counsel of the Internet Commerce Association. Thank you, Phil. Well, thank you, Bennett. And it's very convenient to have this interview right across the street from the hotel where the uh, Domain Fest is being held, where I'm speaking this afternoon. It's been, it's proved to be a great lure. I'll just say, look for the big white building across the street. Um, so, um, Phil, you, you just came out of Washington, and, you know, in our, our last show we were talking about the big story out of Washington was, you know, PIPA and SOPA, and um, so, you know, I'm in here in Hollywood, and so it looks like, you know, that, that movie had a happy ending, and all's good and well, right? Well, Bennett, I don't think the movie's even over yet. Uh, and if anything, I think it's one of those horror movies where uh, uh, you go to the cemetery and lean over the grave and the hand shoots out and uh, grabs you by the throat. And uh, then the sequel's coming. But uh, uh, the way this ended, and it ended very surprisingly, we, we all know that there was this unprecedented uh, outpouring of, of uh, emails and phone calls, all kind of grass, natural grassroots, not whipped up by any... Uh, trade group, uh, not astroturf, but real, real voters uh, who, you know, by, by the hundreds of thousands, uh, weighed in with the White House and Congress on this. And then we had the uh, internet go black, and we saw uh, uh, Majority Leader Harry Reid pull the bill people off the Senate uh, schedule. It's supposed to be the first item up when they reconvene for the second session. Uh, last week, we saw uh, Judiciary Chairman Lamar Smith pull. SOPA, which had been uh, in the middle of the markup. And in fact, I think it was that markup of SOPA, which was very badly timed. They began the markup just before the congressional break for uh, Christmas and New Year's. And with now with, uh, with every hearing and markup webcast, it was an opportunity for the people to see their representatives and work. And I think a lot of people 
who care about the Internet and know about the Internet were just horrified to see member after member of the House Judiciary Committee say, I don't know anything about the Internet or how it works, but I'm voting for this bill because we've got to stop all this theft on the Internet. And, and that was after a hearing, which was uh, all proponents of the bill except for Google, and Chairman Smith beat up on Google before they even started uh, testifying. So uh, I, I think, think Daryl Issa referred to it as the, the, the make Google a pinata. Yeah, yeah, and Google was a pinata, and, and Google certainly there's questions about some of their practices on privacy and copyright, but but it wasn't a balanced inquiry. It was a uh, more of a Soviet-style show hearing, and uh, we saw the effect, but uh, and very interesting, we had that White House statement come out the Saturday before the bull, the bills were polled, where the White House didn't say they would veto the bills, didn't even mention the bills, but said these are our principles for a bill the President would sign, and the principles seemed to be at odds with the bill, and that was a, uh, a blow against them. You know, from my cynical insider perspective, uh, you had a White House which uh, depended heavily on the left-wing blogosphere to be elected in 2008. Uh, election year politics are driving a great deal of what it's doing. Now they wanted to calm that part of the base down. They wanted to calm Silicon Valley down so they could keep going up there and raise money. And Victoria Espinel, uh, who's the IP czar, who was the lead signature on that policy, she knew, she had to know that the mega upload bust was coming five days later, which was a huge gift to Hollywood, and in my opinion will chill innovation uh, and censor the Internet more than uh, PIPA and SOPA ever would if they had been enacted. She knew that was common and that Hollywood would be very happy with it uh, five days later. So th this was a very well-crafted play where they kind of calmed down one side but kept Hollywood happy and uh, so but the bills are on hold uh, even the White House said they still want something against uh, piracy uh, the uh, Silicon Valley forces are now united by uh, uh, uh they're getting behind the open bill introduced by Senator uh, Wyden and Representative Issa, which uh, would refer these piracy disputes to the International mm -hmm. Trade Commission. We know that's not acceptable to the content industry. So you're going to have a period of a couple of months where there'll be maybe some discussions. I don't see the two sides agreeing on a common bill. Uh, I think Hollywood's going to make one more Hail Mary play in the lame duck session. This issue is too hot to handle before the elections, but by no means is... Uh, legislation that would impose new duties on internet intermediaries dead by uh it's just not dead it's coming back in some form maybe in the lame duck session certainly next congress uh because the the essential conflict between industries that want to control the reproduction and distribution of content and the fact that the internet makes it almost impossible uh is very difficult to resolve now what's your take on the mega upload bust and well, do you think there are more coming well, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see more coming. Uh, uh, when we saw ICE begin to seize domains after the uh, uh, Protect I IP Act was passed. And uh, ICE is the Immigration ICE and Customs. ICE is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, part of the Department of Homeland Security. They're the ones who've been seizing domains and taking them down for copyright uh, infringement. The mega upload bust was carried out by the Department of Justice and FBI. It was a criminal matter, but... We saw those ICE domain takedowns start slowly and build and build to, to much greater volumes. 
Uh, I wouldn't. I've read the entire 72-page indictment of Mega Upload. Uh, I cannot tell you right now, after reading that, where the line in the sand is between civil and criminal copyright infringement, which I think is why it's going to have such a chilling effect on anyone. And when you look at the practices that met, other than the accusation, and it's just an accusation at this point, we had there's a presumption of innocence, and the government has to prove each element beyond a reasonable doubt. Other than the allegation that they were paying individuals to upload infringing content, uh, there's very little in that indictment uh, that isn't being done by lots of other cyber locker services, by YouTube, uh, by all kinds of intermediaries that have user-generated content. Uh, it's my understanding that you know Mega Upload had 185 registered, 185 million registered users, 50 million users a month. Uh, a lot of the content on their servers was non-infringing. Uh, about 400 out of the 500 Fortune 500 used it to move large files. And artists were using Kim it. Kardashian loves them. Yeah, uh, well, there was that video which UMG had taken down off YouTube uh, with, with all the rap and hip-hop people and it's back up on YouTube, but there was a lawsuit over that. But it, it had substantial non-infringing uses, whatever was being done to infringe. Uh, when I look at other cyber lockers like uh, RapidShare and Box and even some of the cloud services from Amazon and others, they, they could all be, not necessarily will they be targeted, but it's hard to know where DOJ will go after next. And I think the intent is to cast a, to make all these companies say, we need to create, we need to start making inquiry into what our users are doing. We need to put more, make the services less user friendly so that sharing is much more difficult because uh, nobody wants to face the possibility of 20 years in club fed. And there's another big issue, uh, mega upload users since the bust the website was shut down. All these people with non-infringing files, personal files, business files, they don't know if the FBI has been looking through them. The FBI just said the other day, we're done, and since we seized all the company's assets and they can't pay the web hosting services, all the servers may be wiped clean later this week, and people are just going crazy saying, I don't know if the FBI looked through my files, and now I may lose all my data. So I mean, it's, it's a dreadful thought. I mean, yeah. if you were one of their customers, and um, I understand there's an effort to try to retrieve it, um, that, that there's some um, you know, group that's been put together to try to do that. Well, I don't know. Uh, I saw something about the pirate parties in Europe looking to sue the FBI. I don't know if there's any organized effort to, to save the data on the servers. Uh, I thought there was something on the public interest side in the U.S. Now, if, maybe. <coughs> But it raises big question about privacy and data security and, yeah. and the future, frankly, of cloud services and whether people are going to want to entrust their data to companies in, with Nexus to the United States. Now, you're, um, and so also, yeah, there's a whole question of Nexus with the U.S. at the very same time, Europe is asserting their authority with their new privacy initiative. But you're here you know, for Domain Fest with the Internet Commerce Association. So what are, um, if this is important to domainers because of the, the, the allegations of trademark infringement or? Well, uh, Mega Upload is not a direct right. That's more of a copyright uh, issue. Uh, we did, uh, the folks I represent, individuals and companies who are members of the uh, ICA, uh, they own and manage about one-tenth of all the domains in existence, about 20 million domains. They monetize them with content and advertising. Uh, I did a lengthy letter to the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, there was language in SOPA which would have allowed any trademark owner uh, to file a complaint 
uh, with a third, the original version of SOPA, to file a complaint with a third party, uh, intermediary, ad server, ad provider, or payment provider, and say, I believe XYZ company or John Doe domain owner, domain portfolio owner, is harming me by infringing on trademarks because they're facilitating, they're trafficking in domains which constitute counterfeit marks. It's that you could read the bill <clears throat> to imply that domain names can now be considered counterfeit marks in and of themselves. And uh, uh, that was a very dangerous situation because your business could be shut down without payment uh, before you ever got to court for hearing on the merits. So uh, uh, that was the, the issue for us in SOPA, and we're going to continue monitoring it. Okay, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have Phil Corwin with the Internet Commerce Association. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. As you know, being an expert at f <gasps> What did she say? Requires lots of practice and a great tool. Think you could use some help with f Whoa! You're not alone. Hundreds have used our tool to take their f performance to the next level. The language! Of course, we're talking about managing Facebook ads on Aquizio. Oh. Buy, track, manage, optimize, and report on media across all major ad networks. Visit Aquizio.com to get a demo today. Aquizio. Search, social, display, one platform. In 500 yards, CPA Way will be on your right. You have reached your destination. On the interstate of Internet marketing, CPA Way helps you monetize the way. No matter which direction you're heading, CPA Way is your route to low-risk revenue. Advertisers, we have paved the way to delivering revenue channels that will meet and exceed your expectations. Publishers, we monitor and manage your campaigns to bring you the most revenue possible. Publishers can feel secure to leverage direct offers, while advertisers can find safety, offering their most valued campaigns. The road to trust, respect, integrity, and honor is just ahead at CPAWay.com. Superior Affiliate Offers. Superior Affiliate Brands. Superior Affiliate Service. The Superior Affiliate Management. Superior Affiliate Management delivers direct, exclusive offers with weekly payouts. Their mission is to ignite your e-commerce and ignite your commission. Superior Affiliate Brands means our work with the Internet Retailer's Top 500, as well as new brands, thanks to their full-service agency and CPA network. Superior Affiliate Service means lifetime bonus referrals and personal VIP treatment. When you hear Superior Affiliate Offers, Superior Affiliate Brands, Superior Affiliate Service. That's S-A-M-O-P-M dot com. Blog, blog, blog. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're the talk of the town. WebmasterRadio.fm. Thanks for listening. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back um, for our last call here. Um, here with Phil Corwin, um, who was kind enough to walk across the street from Domain Fest, and we're talking about issues affecting um, the Internet Commerce Association and the um, and domain industry in general. And a big issue, obviously, is the the new. Um, 
you know, GTLDs to new top-level domains. Well, that, that is a big issue. Uh, ICANN has spent the last three years developing a 300-page-plus uh, applicant guidebook for applicants for these uh, new TLDs. Uh, the scuttlebutt I'm hip, uh, picking up on this conference, I was sitting at breakfast today with a uh, guy from a major uh, registry services company. Uh, runs their own registries and provides back-end, will be providing back-end services to these new TLDs. They expect a million hundred applications a, uh, and, and quite possibly a thousand or more. What he's telling me, what I've heard... 185,000 a pop. 185,000 a pop just for the application fee. They're saying it's going to double ICANN's revenue? Uh, oh, more than doubled. Wow. Probably triple. Uh, it depends how many. If they got a thousand applications, that'd be $185 million in application fees and their budget is about... 63, so it's a triple their annual budget, just an application. So you want to go to their Christmas party this year? Yeah, well, they're saying that's to recover their cost of developing the program. I I would have thought they'd already paid everyone who developed the program. Uh, About a third of that fee is going to the Legal Defense Fund because they expect lawsuits over this from various uh, quarters. What's ironic is that uh, the big brands, the trademark interest, who raised holy hell about the program and said it would be a major source of... And their group is called CADNA, the Coalition. Well, CADNA is one group, but there's a lot of groups here. There's International Chamber of Commerce, and there's AIM in Europe, and and there's all kinds of international trademark association based here in the U.S. Uh, There's lots of trademark groups, just like they're... You know, and they've got some concerns about uh, the cost of defensive registrations and all these uh, new registries. But what I'm hearing is that uh, a big chunk of the applications going to be for dot brands, where major brand owners who were protesting the program all are right. now going to buy their company name or or the trademark name of their biggest products and have dot product dot company and uh, use that for a whole new marketing campaign based so on owning their own. Their brand at the top level with the domain name. So car dot Ford or could be or uh, could be iPad dot Apple, iPod dot oh, okay. Apple, uh, Mac dot Apple. Uh, you know, companies which have clearly identifiable brands that that uh, you know, for some like Procter and Gamble, nobody goes out saying I want to buy Procter and Gamble detergent or right. dishwashing liquid. They're yeah, not like three hundred brands. Yeah. So uh, and then you might get. Where the company name is a generic, like United, United Airlines might want to grab dot United just before, so yeah, United Van Lines doesn't get exactly. it or somebody That'd be else. A good fight. Now, um, one thing that the the, the the trademark holders have been saying is we, we've seen a little bit already with the the triple X um, domain is that you know they have to defensively register in order to make sure that you know someone isn't abusing that. And that you know, as we if we have all these you know, domains that they're talking about, you know, this that like one estimate was it would cost them you know five hundred thousand dollars or more just to, well, to register. You know, I've seen those like estimates. I don't want to say it's zero, but but the the IP interests tend to exaggerate both the threats and the costs. Uh, if you're in the uh, airline business, you don't have to register your name at dot bank, dot bikes. You know, a right. domain for bicycles. People aren't going to be looking for it there and, and and also the kind of cyber squatting we've seen at dot com that's all based on type in traffic there's going to be very little natural type in traffic for any of these new TLDs their biggest challenge is going to be survive there's going to be uh, uh, considerable fail business failures in this space where where new TLDs don't gain enough market share to justify their existence and ICANN is requiring bonds and and failover 
policies for, for orderly uh, dissolution of uh, new registries that don't make it in the marketplace. So you pay 185000 to launch, and then imagine this is... Yeah, and the real cost, by the time you, ha- you hire your lawyers and your consultants and your financial people... Thanks for that. ...to complete the application, <laughs> and uh, you, you get your bond uh, for continuing operations if you fail. You're talking minimum half a million, but more likely close to a million for a single new TLD. And even with that, they're expecting a 1,000 applicants. Well, yes, uh, there's going to be a lot of dot .geos, where, uh, dot .paris, dot, N- dot .nyc, where they've got an endorsement of the city, where they think they can make a go of that, because so much Internet search these days is local. Right. Uh, they think that'll work. Uh, uh, there'll be a lot of brand TLDs. There'll be some generics. We don't know what they are. Now, if you're a big brand who, who pays $2 bucks for a 30-second ad on the Super Bowl, uh Half a million dollars for your dot brand application is trivial. It, it's a, such a mm-hmm. small marketing cost again to own your brand at the top level of the domain name system in perpetuity. Uh, it's almost a no-brainer uh, for the marketing people. So it depends who you is, are. Is Super Bowl going to be one for, for you or I, Bennett? You know that would uh, you know crimp us a bit. But, uh, <laughs> it would, yeah. But it's, a it's, Fortune 500 company, it's not a big expense. Do you, do you expect Super Bowl to be one of them? Not Super Bowl. No, but but maybe dot NFL or dot, maybe dot uh, MLB Major League Baseball. You don't know who's out there looking at this. And the MLB, I know they've been very aggressive online and for many years. Um, I used to work with an online ticketing company, and they were you know they were ahead yeah. of their other leagues before that. But you mentioned Triple X. They did build into this new program two new rights protections, which go beyond the existing uniform dispute resolution policy, which is the arbitration process for. Uh, uh, transferring domain names that infringe on a trademark that exists now. One is the trademark clearinghouse where brand owners can register all their trademarks and, and kind of get preemptive right to buy them and also send out warnings to people who try to squat on them. And the other is new uniform rapid suspension, which is a low-cost version of the UDRP, and they're still developing the rules for that. Okay. So there's lots of trademark protections in this. Phil, I'm afraid we're out of time, but I want to thank you. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, where should they contact you? Uh... Well, my website is vlawdc.com. You can see my contact information there. And uh, anything going on in Washington or in ICANN that relates to the uh, domain name space, uh, intellectual property areas in there, uh, I'd be happy to talk to anybody with an interest in the policy angle. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm glad you came back and I hope you join us again. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center. Um, my new top level domain is PatriotSuperBowlChampions.com. And um, any event, I um, hope you join us next week. And um, once again, um, our best to the Pearl family on this um, somber anniversary. Webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere.
IRN USA Radio News. I'm Hope Duggar. The president's housing refinance plan falls flat with the top House Republican. Here's Jerry Boatlander. Speaker John Boehner doesn't think much of the administration's latest effort to help homeowners bring their payments down. We've done this at least four times uh, where there's some new government program to help. Florida. He voted for new. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.